Okay, we've got the Corbeau Awards, all the Reign of Terror stuff. I think we're ready to record this. Jay, how come you keep glancing over at the door? I'm waiting for Kid Apocalypse. Is that a metaphor? What? No, he's our musical guest for the winter special. Kid uh, Apocalypse? Yep. Evan Sabiner? No, Quinn Allen. But Kid Apocalypse is- Not that Kid Apocalypse. Well, sort of that Kid Apocalypse. It's a little complicated. And he's our musical guest. Now you're getting it. Hey, guys. Uh, Hey, Quinn, you made it. Your Kid Apocalypse? Yep. You have a beard. Yes? Is this a Battle World thing? What? Can Apocalypse even grow a beard? I'm pretty sure he can't. Oh, okay. I I think I see what's going on here. My name's Quinn. I'm a rapper. I perform as Kid Apocalypse. Uh, So you're not from the world? I'm not entirely sure how to answer that. I mean, did you grow up in a small, artificially constructed Kansas in a hermetically sealed dome? I grew up in California. Uh, This is somewhat disappointing. He is a very good rapper. But I'm still wrapping my head around the beard, honestly. Are there any other fictional characters I should expect today? Uh, Occasionally I collaborate with Deadpool, but he's got a thing today. That's really just as well. He's kind of outside of our scope of coverage. Not Phantom X? Nah, honestly, usually just... uh, Oya? Dark Beast. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 144 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera and our official 2016-2017 winter special. Yep, we're running a little bit late on this one like we were with the summer special, but I don't know, I'm still feeling some, you know, turn-of-the-year holiday magic. What do you think? I mean, we definitely have the snow for it. Yeah, Portland remains a wintry wonderland slash hellscape, depending on how much you like sliding around on ice. It's more of a hellscape, I think. Yeah, I suppose so. More of a Jotunheim kind of scape. I like saying Jotunheim mainly. But yeah. Do it again, just for good measure. Jotunheim. Well done. So we have sort of a grab bag of stuff for you. Like with past winter specials, we're going to be doing some coverage of comics because we like comics. Specifically, the third Wolverine annual Reign of Terra, in which Wolverine finds himself transplanted into a fairy tale kingdom. It's pretty bizarre, and we enjoyed it. But we're also going to be talking to Kid Apocalypse from the cold open just a moment ago. Hi again, Quinn. Oh, hello. (laughs) And a brief visit from the Dennis Hopeless of the past. We had hoped to have him on live today, but you will be hearing his voice because we've got something very special that we have been saving for a very long time. We will be debuting on the air for the first time today. First, I think, actually, we've got a track from Kid Apocalypse from his upcoming album, Regenesis. This is called Return of the King. I think maybe we should open by just playing that. Whispers circulating, the return of the king Gets the thoughts all percolating like the lord of the ring Bringing back the big man with a capital A The apocalypse prime like the dawn of new day It ain't nothing but that, just a horrible rumor The X-Men took him down, cut him out like a tumor Count of one thing, and of this I'm really sure There can be only one, and I'm in Sabanur Every age needs a 
ruler, the invisible hand. I will bring about order to cleanse this whole land. I'm the one true past, the only mutant messiah. First comes the fear, and then you'll be a pariah. Well, I guess I can't admit that it doesn't seem fair. That the cloth that we're cut from is starting to tear. Man, even Cyclops has been branded a terrorist. There's a mirror on the wall, then ain't no one the fairest. All I want is some peace, just a moment of solace. If we don't get no mercy, I won't show them the smallest. I lost all my stock, already cashed in my shares. Here's my final two cents, go call someone who cares. Dude, that was awesome. I'm more of a metalhead kind of guy myself, but that was great. Oh, thank you. Going straight from a recorded track to an interview feels really official. I feel like we've kind of gone all Terry Gross now. I feel okay about that. Was it Terry Gross who had a scalp massage from one of the Mystery Science Theater guys that one time? Yes. Yeah. I mean, sort of. But we digress immediately. Yeah, so this is a track. It's sort of like a rap battle between like Apocalypse and then Evan, Kid Apocalypse. Yeah, that's exactly how I envisioned it. Yeah, I thought, wouldn't it be funny if he's actually kind of rapping with a version of Apocalypse that's sort of in his mind? Uh, and that's what came out of it. So going back a step, you perform as Kid Apocalypse. Um, yes, correct. How did you land there? I, I'm I'm thinking through the characters he was introduced with and the folks along him, and he doesn't really seem like most likely to become a rapper of that group. How did you settle on that guy as your stage persona? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've told the story before about uh, I was filming a movie in Texas, and a friend of mine knew that I was a big comic book fan, and he asked that if I, if I'd ever heard any kind of nerdcore rap, and I didn't really know what that was. It never was a term that I was familiar with. So he was showing me things like Megaran, and that's kind of an idea of a character-based performance art, right? He's kind of pre- pretending that he is Mega Man or Mega Ran. Uh, and he did the same thing with his uh, Final Fantasy VII album, Black Materia, which I was a big fan of. And so uh, I think upon coming back from Texas, I was reading Remender's Uncanny X-Force, where they introduced Kid Apocalypse, and something about the character sort of resonated with me. That, and I think it was more just centered around his idea of the nature versus nurture, that everybody thinks that he is going to be this monster, and he believes that he is a good person. And I kind of thought, hey, that's a theme I can roll with in, in rap form. And so for listeners who are not familiar with this era of X-Men, we should do like, I don't know, maybe like a one or two sentence summary of who Evan is. Jay, do you want to take that? Yeah. So Evan is a clone of a clone of Apocalypse. The original clone was killed by Phantom X on the moon during X-Force. And he recovered some of the cells and basically created a secondary one who grew up in the world, a small enclosed time condensed environment built by the weapon program with Phantom X as his wacky uncle in a simulation of Kansas with a happy, basically Kent-style nuclear family to see if he could be made good. He is a super sweet kid who these days runs around in a van with the original time-displaced X-Men, along with Wolverine and Oya, collects fancy sneakers, and worries a lot about his potential dark destiny. Yeah. You did that very well. That's actually way better than I could have ever done. I, I've tried to explain his origin to people when they ask me why I do what I do, and it's usually that glossed over look <laughs> two seconds after. Well, he's not the first clone. There was actually another clone, and that's where I lose people. I'm a professional. <laughs> I, yeah, I can tell. Very well done. So, yeah, you were saying that, you know, you, you've been reading Remenders on Kenny X-Force, and he just sort of jumped out at you. And so, I mean, from the different songs you've done, like, you know, most of them are as Kid Apocalypse, but they're not all as focused on, you know, Evan's own story as this song was. Yeah, that's correct. I kind of, especially with this newest release, I think I'm towing that line more than ever before between character base and not character base. So some of it is sort of breaking that wall and it's sort of talking from my perspective about some of my own personal, you know, history and past. And then I think another thing you have to understand is that uh, a lot of the songs that were originally intended for this album date back quite a few years now. I got kind of sidetracked and busy with some acting work. So 
Uh, it's been sort of uh, very sporadic as to when I've been able to w- release Kid Apocalypse music. But originally, it kind of started out being all in character, kind of touching on a lot of the events from Uncanny X-Force and uh, Wolverine and the X-Men, and then eventually now all new X-Men. Uh, so I, I still do a little bit of that, but you can probably imagine that it gets pretty difficult to uh, keep making up a material for a character that isn't featured that heavily in the comic books anymore. Um, so, you know, kind of had to supplement that with some of my own personal uh, background. Speaking of characters, you've got a couple of regular collaborators and other characters you've written as or you have performed as. There's the Professor Xavier track, for example, on Regenesis. Mm-hmm. How do you pick those out? How do you end up with those? Because, you know, as you mentioned, the Evan stuff is pulled pretty directly from canon, but those are some pretty unlikely team-ups. I mean, Deadpool, Dark Beast... I guess Deadpool kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, if you kind of recall, Deadpool was sort yeah. of mentoring him at the end of uh, the uh, Uncanny X-Force run. Uh, he's the one that kind of saves him from the, what do they call themselves? I guess the New Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, where they had the Omega Red sort of return with the different Omegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he, they were trying to make him wear the armor and stuff. And originally, I had a track on this album that was very much dealing with that kind of finishing off that r- remender run of Uncanny X-Force. And fortunately, because of time constraints, we just never got around to being able to do that one. Uh, so your question was basically like, where do we come up with the ideas for these other characters? So outside of this particular project, I've also done some hip hop stuff as a, a Star Trek character that I call Two Spock which is really on the nose. <laughs> uh, and so I did like a little four song uh, EP called uh, Strictly for My Trekkies. Uh, and then I did, um, uh, following my disappointment uh, of the, the release of Pokemon Go, I did another track called um, by a, a character I call Professor Dope. And it's called Where, Where Dim Good Pokemon's At. Um, so I've kind of done that as far as like, oh, I'm going to try some different things outside of this. But for Kid Apocalypse, I've mostly stuck to just doing the Apocalypse stuff uh, as Evan, uh, and then Jared, who I've collaborated with this um, since the beginning, he originally started out doing the Dark Beast thing, which, again, was a character that made more sense back in the time when Uncanny X-Force was was actually still going on because Dark Beast was featured heavily in that. I think he's dead now. He is, yeah. yeah um, in current for, for the moment, anyway. I think, yeah. Uh, there was going to be a track about that, too, because I know Jared mentioned that he had something kind of making fun of, I think it was Brian Michael Bendis that, that killed him off. Mm-hmm. And so he was going to be like, thanks, Bendis. You know, <laughs> uh, so I think he kind of, uh, Jared rightly decided, uh, maybe not do so much of the Dark Beast this time around. Um, I know we had planned on doing a Deadpool track a long time ago, uh, and it just didn't come out until now. And we just thought it would be fun to do. So Jared took the, you know, took the helm on that one and decided to do the Deadpool. And then he had an idea for an Xavier one. And I said, sure, go for it. So I got to go back to the song itself here because I couldn't help but notice that your apocalypse, like, you know, older apocalypse, sounds a lot like the apocalypse voice filter we use in the show, which, of course, both sound a hell of a lot like the apocalypse from the animated series. Yeah, I was going to say ours is pretty much cribbed from the cartoon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was the direction I went with. uh, Keelan King is the guy who uh, produced this for me. And so when we were sitting in the studio and I had recorded those tracks, I said, like, you know, just make it sound like the cartoon. I want that kind of crazy Mm -hmm. deep voice. And I think you did a really good job. I have no idea how the wizardry that you do to make those things happen. But, um, you know, I was just sort of standing over shoulder and I think he knew exactly what I was going for. I think it's funny, too, if you really, if, especially if you're listening to that track with headphones on, you can kind of pick out in the track that you can almost still hear my original unfiltered voice on top of it, which really lends itself to that idea that this really is just Evan maybe rapping in a mirror or something like and hearing the evil voice of Apocalypse in his head. So I liked that detail. As soon as you bring up the image of him rapping in a mirror, like that's the point where I can make the jump to imagining Evan mm-hmm. 
as a rapper. Like I can totally, totally imagine him as the kid who raps in his bedroom. Yeah. It would be a very private thing. I feel like for, yeah. for that character, mm-hmm. it's not something that he's going to announce, you know, readily to his mate. But like, I do like the idea that like Deadpool would get it, you know? So if he really was friends with Deadpool, like Deadpool would totally rap with him. Like <laughs> he gave him a bunch of porno mags once. I think that's, you know, like, He's even an even better Uncle Cluster. I feel like this could be like a deleted scene from Aaron or Latour's Wolverine and the X-Men, yeah. right? what we're describing right now. Absolutely. Because <laughs> there was literally that scene in that where he crawled through the window of the school, Deadpool, crawled through the window to meet with, uh, with Kid Apocalypse. And I think maybe after that, we just didn't see that they started rapping because that totally happened. But I mean, yeah. read between the panels, people. It's right, right there. It's right there. This is the equivalent of blood in the gutters. What, what would it be? I guess uh, beats in the gutters. Beats in the gutters. Totally. Right. Uh, you can have that as an album title if you'd like Thank it. It's, you. it's all yeah, yours. That's the next yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Right. So you mentioned the comics and Apocalypse from the cartoon is your definitive Apocalypse voice. And we know you really like the Remender stuff. What's your definitive X-Men or X-Men era? Well, I am a child of the 80s and 90s, so grew up watching the X-Men animated series, which if you've heard some of our older stuff, we kind of sampled uh, that song just like you guys use in your open um, because it's irresistible. And so, you know, the cartoon, obviously, I think they did a really good job at times at, at trying to parallel what was actually happening in some of the comic storylines. They really get you, they, they do their own versions of them often. Uh, they don't quite stick exactly to the comic, but it certainly gets you interested in like, oh, what's this Days of Future Past thing about? Uh, you know, and so that certainly was a huge influence on me. But as far as like in the comic books, what was like maybe one era of X-Men? <sighs> I mean, I did... I did definitely have the number one from, you know, Jim Lee and everything. And it the was, one that sold like a billion uh, copies. No, that everybody comes into the comic stores these days being like, oh, I have X-Men number one. How much is this worth? And you're like, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. It's worth the livelihood of the direct market, man. <laughs> okay. A- <laughs> it's worth our entire business model. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've been so kind of all over the place with my X-Men reading uh, that I think we, we talked about this in the car earlier that like, honestly, Ultimate X-Men was something that I probably followed most regularly, um, which I don't even know if that universe exists anymore. So uh, mostly not. We have a couple of holdovers who are there. We have like we have Miles Morales and his friend Genki, Ganki, however you say it. Uh, we, of course, we have Ultimate Reed Richards. And I'm not sure that anybody else did come over from Ultimate. Like, which, even even Age of Apocalypse had more holdovers than Ultimate. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah, because that universe still does exist somehow. Or maybe it doesn't post Secret War since all universes were sort of eradicated. But I mean, if, I think if that demonstrates anything, it's that the major downfall of the Ultimate Universe was not being sufficiently glam. Yeah. If people had way bigger hair, yeah. then they probably would have been fine. Yeah. That's what takes you through the time stream, actually. You just sort of, uh, it's like Dumbo flying on his ears. You know, you have X-Man or whatever flying on those giant surfer locks that he had that covered his eyes all the time. Well, Legion had some pretty big hair and he went back in time, right? He's, no, I assume he was that, the cause of the I whole thing. that yeah. X-Man was surfing on waves of fishnet. Oh, he, the fishnet wasn't until later that Nate Gray was wearing. Miles, it was always in his heart. <laughs> it just sort of emerged. It was part of him. It was never a magic mesh shirt. The magic was inside him all along. <laughs> Sinister put it there. I actually also really like X Man. I don't know. I don't think it's a lot of people's favorite character, but I, I don't know why. But I always kind of liked X Man, and I thought he was great. And I did. I wish I could remember what it was, but I was just watching a TV show or movie or something where they were making reference to the X Men. You know what? I think it was the Get Down. I think in the show, The Get Down, they make reference to the X-Men. They're like, there's no one X-Man, it's the X-Men. I was like, actually? <laughs> yeah, no, there's a bit in Community where Abed is making fun of Britta and says her favorite superhero is X-Men. And I was... Oh, that must rankle the hell out of you. No, oh. no, I know prized it away. Okay, tell me. I assume he just really hates Nate Gray. Yeah, okay, okay. That, that it's not that he's describing this to talk about how little she understands about the X-Men. He's saying it, you know, as evidence of her bad taste. <laughs> I will totally accept that. It is entirely character reasonable. I think he's a great idea for a character because the one thing about Cable is like, you know, you can never really 
see him at his most powerful because he's got the virus that he's fighting off. And so his psychic powers have to use that to keep it at bay. So the idea of a version of him that didn't get the legacy virus and therefore could like actually use his full psychic potential is kind of awesome. Yeah. And I like the whole shaman of earth thing and yeah. that, that sort of a uh, inverted X circle tattoo. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've considered getting that tattoo. Oh, it's pretty sweet. I was literally thinking that the other night. And also I think Brian Singer has that tattoo on his leg. Really? Oh. I'm pretty sure. So that's okay. what we're doing after we finish recording, right? Let's do it. I'm Which in. is just I'll a saga going, good going tattoos. Getting X-Men tattoos. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect. Except I'm just going to get a tattoo of Nate Gray, like, on my face. <laughs> and I also want his sweet leather jacket with no shirt underneath like he wears sometimes. That would be cool. It's a popular choice, yeah. you know. Uh, in the era we're covering right now, we'll actually get to this in the issue coverage, but um, Richter just dresses like that all yeah. the time. He's a confident young man, given his uh, traumatic upbringing. He is. He is. So, yeah, talking about uh, Definitive Errors, now you've mentioned um, Uncanny X-Force and Wolverine and the X-Men and all-new X-Men, but for you, like, Evan Sabiner, the one that you identify with, the one that made you think, hey... I want to kind of rap as this character. Like, is there a specific version of Evan, Kid Apocalypse, Genesis, that is sort of like your version? Yeah. I mean, he's sort of inconsistent in the comic books to begin with from the version that he started out with. I almost feel like, I don't, I think they, they must have mentioned his intended age at that time. But the, if you really look at the way that he's being drawn in the Uncanny X-Force saga, he kind of looks a little older than he winds up looking later on in the series, mm -hmm. um, especially when he had this cool suit that he no longer seems to have anymore but uh and so yeah i think going out of that when they when wolverine decided no you know phantom x you're irresponsible you can't do this he's coming to my school uh because you know wolverine's so responsible he is arguably more responsible than phantom x yeah. i mean there, there are i mean they're, he both, was... they're both terrible and neither of them should raise children right. but if you have to choose between them i'd probably give the kid to wolverine at least yeah. I mean, at the time that the, he met Wolverine, Wolverine was leading a co you know, a black ops team of like assassins. So, you know, which say what Phantom you will X about that. Which Phantom X was on I know, periodically yeah, yeah, which, and left regularly because they were too low key for him. Right, right. Exactly. They had, which is why he's the one that actually killed the first clone and yeah. nobody else could. Um, but yeah, I think the all new, I'm sorry, the Wolverine and the X-Men uh, version of him was probably my favorite version of him i just liked him, him in that setting i liked him at that school before the school was in limbo um not, that's not a metaphor um <laughs> <laughs> limbo like you know the literal place right. in x-men right and uh and i liked i liked how he had that weird sort of dynamic with i you know he was sort of outcast I've, that's something i've always kind of liked about him in particular is like mutants are feared and hated by the world at large and then kid apocalypse is also feared and hated by mutants because everybody's just assuming that he's going to turn evil at one point. So, mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, there, was some, there was some evidence he actually would from that book, as I recall. Absolutely. There were some little uh, hints uh, that, that maybe he is going to fulfill his apocalyptic, I'm sure that's a word, uh, destiny. Mm -hmm. It is. We occasionally have to distinguish between upper and lower case. Right. And in this case, I guess both. <laughs> Which actually I think I said in the song, didn't I say something about uh, the ma bringing back the man with a capital A? Yup, yup. Yeah, we have to be specific at which, which apocalypse we mean. Well, and literally the man with a capital A on his belt. I Absolutely. love that he has like a monogrammed belt, yes, basically. Yes, that was, I wish I have that. that. If I could incorporate that into my outfit, that would be amazing. We know a guy who knows a guy. All right. It's true. Up. <laughs> but actually, that brings up another question. You know, we've talked about Apocalypse and Kid Apocalypse over a couple different media. What did you think of the movie? X-Men Apocalypse? Yeah. Um, you know, I was prepared to hate it. I wanted to hate it based on, of course, the early artwork that we all, I think, universally hated. Absolutely. It brought back Ivan Ooze from the Power Rangers movies <laughs> for me. I, I know a lot of people made that connection, but that was immediately what I thought of. Um, so, I, you know, I, I have nothing against Oscar Isaac as an actor. I think he's a fantastic actor. I thought that was a weird choice. Because, I mean, if you were like me and you grew up watching the cartoon, I think you're probably thinking of like a giant, strong, scary, intimidating dude, which seemed to be what Apocalypse was all about originally. Uh, so the fact that they were going with this more sort of charismatic, 
um, almost like a cult leader. He could like really convince you that he was right, you know, uh, was, was a different choice. Um, and one that ultimately I don't think I disliked. I, mm-hmm. I, I was okay with him. I was okay with the character. Uh, the movie, you know, has some plot holes like most superhero movies do. Uh, but ultimately I, I, I think I liked that one better than Days of Future Past, which some people get offended by for some reason but. i i enjoyed them both but then again i i like liking things unless they're x-men 3 which can go straight to hell oh definitely it has its moments it I has mean, really good fight scenes really good soundtrack really good jamie madrox and uh what's her name juno ellen page oh she was in days of future past yep, she, yeah. she was there too they brought yeah. her in that one too uh if you see the music video for one of my tracks space out i specifically um i think break character for a second and talk about x3 which then in the music video we are smashing that dvd with a hammer (laughs) i feel great about that yeah yeah that's a good thing to do with it Mm -hmm. so we are running a little bit low on time at this point so really quickly uh the track that we previewed return of the king is Mm -hmm. from regenesis your new album when does that drop um we at this point we're thinking mid-february we don't have an exact date but i am just basically waiting for the editor to finish the music video so there's a video with that as well what track is that from again the music video will be for the in the 1990s track it will be the first one for me to be featured without the makeup uh so this is a little bit like i said a breaking of the character and kind of just more nerdcore rap track in general okay and where can folks find that and you online yeah absolutely um most of our music all of our music is available for free uh download at kidapocalypse.bandcamp dot com which is sort of the main source of that and then if you just youtube kid apocalypse rap you can find all of our music videos via mongrel studios which is the production studio that i help run and we will link to all of that on the episode's visual companion as well so before i go actually uh i come bearing gifts i've actually made up some hip-hop names for you both what okay yeah. i i'm i'm really excited about this yeah and i figured since you guys are kind of like djs or PJs. I don't know what you call a podcast jockey. I'm going to uh, say PJs. PJ. So you guys are both PJs. So I went with like more Sounds DJ comfy. inspired names. So you ready for your names? Yes. Okay. We've got Jam Master J. Jonah Jameson Jr. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Mix Master Miles Morales. <laughs> I also was thinking Miles more or less. <laughs> <laughs> I like either of these options. That works. We have, we have rapped. Well, I've rapped on the podcast. You haven't. Oh, man. Oh, but we're we getting did, him we, there. We did um, for Emerald City last year for our live show for the Cold Open. Uh, we wrote a chunk of one of the Hamilton segments as a, a rap battle about whether to cover Secret Wars. Oh, I have to hear that. That sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. It was. Um, Who won? Everyone. To cover or everyone not to cover? Won. Uh, we covered Secret Wars. The ultimate thing that, that set Miles off in the cold open was that it hadn't actually been an, a conflict. We just wanted to do a rap battle. <laughs> right. was, uh, Scott right. Goblish was the other half of that one. Wonderful. Yeah. And Quinn, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a ton of fun. And also, like, you live around here, so we can hang out and stuff sometimes. And that's great, too. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. I hope to see you guys at Emerald City Con. And thank you so much for having me. It's been a really great honor. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, so let's go from the magical land of hip-hop to the magical land of Earth 1991, the realm of Geshem. What are we covering today, Jay? Is its designation actually 1991? Yes, it came out in 1991, and it's Earth 1991. They figured they would keep it simple, I guess. Yeah, that's roughly appropriate. So today we are going to be covering the third Wolverine annual. This came after The Jungle Adventure and Bloodlust, and boy is it a departure. Right, so we haven't been covering all of Wolverine, so we did skip those, but briefly, in The Jungle Adventure... Wolverine impregnates a cavewoman and gets laughed at by Apocalypse. That one was by Walter Simonson and Mike Mignola. And in Bloodlust, Wolverine joins a fight between rival Arctic spirit creatures. And according to your notes, those spirit creatures are Alan Davis and himself? No, no, no. The book was written and drawn by Alan Davis. But if he was actually in it, too, I assume that would only make it better. I was going to say, I'd never really thought of Alan Davis as an Arctic spirit creature. Well, I mean, I've never met him, have you? 
No, I I just assume he has extremely swoopy hair. I I don't know anything about him. I'd be disappointed if not. Now, this takes place a little bit later than we are in continuity, specifically after New Mutants 92 and Uncanny X-Men number 268, which is right before Wolverine's guest appearance in the New Mutants Madripoor story. But honestly, that doesn't really matter because it actually stands alone pretty well. The main thing you need to know is that this is during the period when Cable is leading the New Mutants, but it's before the Extinction Agenda. And it is written by a fellow who we're going to see as a very, very prominent figure in the X line in the not too distant future, but who so far at this point had only dipped his toes in. That's Peter David. Yeah, he's later going to write the government team era and the private investigator era of X Factor in addition to various other stuff. He did a lot of Hulk, I believe. Yeah, well, and we've seen him on a little bit of Wolverine. Yep, we have. He did the Gehenna Stone affair, I believe. Yeah, and it is drawn by Andy Kubert. And man, Kubert's art is really interesting here, because later on, he's going to do a bunch of X-Men, like in the 90s, later in the decade. And his style seems to be very much at its infancy at this point. Like, it almost seems like a cross between his dad, Joe Kubert's style, and like Rob Liefeld's style. He's colored here, and the colors really don't help, by Sherilyn Van Valkenburg, who man, is just not doing anything in this story any favors. The colors are kind of like brown and gray and muddy. Like, they remind me of any given first-person shooter from a couple years ago. Insufficiently gravelly. Everyone has very, very pink lips in this, too. That's a thing. I mean, I assume we're going through a really dry winter right now in Portland, so you gotta wear lip balm all the time. Maybe that's what they're doing. Or they just all have really, really chapped lips all the time. No, no, no. I like to think that Cable, now that he's their mentor, he focuses on the really important stuff, like carefully moisturizing your lips, and if what you have at hand happens to be, you know, cherry-flavored and bright pink, well then, damn it, so be it. Your health is more important than aesthetics. So what you're saying, then, is that the Kingdom of Geshem just has very, very limited lip balm technology that hasn't been separated from their lipstick technology, so everything is just highly pigmented? I mean, you know, it's medieval, so they have fewer options, right? Ah, the Middle Ages, when everyone wore hot pink lipstick all the time. I'm glad we have a similar understanding of the concept of history. And cats looked really fucked up. And babies, have you seen, like, medieval paintings of babies? They look like tiny middle-aged men. No, the cats, though, seriously. Yeah, the cats just look, I don't even know what they look like. I like to imagine that that's how cats actually looked in the Middle Ages, and they were just drawing them accurately. And they just evolved very, very quickly over the course of a couple hundred years. Exactly. Yeah, I can totally handle that. So, yeah, what we have here, as we've alluded to, is a story set partially in this sort of medieval, magical land, and it reminded me initially a little bit of New Mutants number 22, which is part of the Bilson Kevitz cloak and dagger arc, where Rain, like, sort of writes her own little fairy tale where she's a princess and has talking animal friends. Yeah, except, no, because that's mostly a callback, I think, to Kitty's fairy tale, and then a call forward to Liana's fairy tale much later, but here... Instead of a fairy tale, what we have is a fairly well-developed sword and sorcery kingdom, a pretty well-made fantasy land. And there are fairy tale elements, definitely. I mean, it's got a very fairy tale structure, but the world is, I think, much, much better realized than any of those. I would agree. And we do know that even without the fairy tale, though, Rain does have her own little medieval connections in her imagination, because there was that one time in the Gossamer arc in New Mutants number 68, where uh, Cannonball became a Disney prince when Gossamer made a hallucination of him to appeal to Rain's romantic sensibilities. I'd like to point out that she also has medieval connections outside of her imagination because she is totally officially historical bros with Robert the Bruce. Oh, right. There was that one other time. It's yeah. true. Yeah. She gave him an X-Men belt. I just realized, Jay, I think we might know too much about New Mutants. I think we might think more about New Mutants than possibly anyone else in the world. Miles, it's our jobs. They should consult us for the New Mutants movie. I mean, seriously, if anybody's listening, should, like, yeah. please talk yeah, to us. call us. We totally want to talk to you. We will give you all sorts of really probably dubiously useful advice. Our advice would be very useful. We know things. So many things. 
anyway, uh, we have here Wolverine Reign of Terra. Now, it's called Wolverine Reign of Terra. Honestly, I think it's more of a new mutant story. What do you think? I agree wholeheartedly, but one of Wolverine's secondary mutations is automatically taking over at least official protagonisthood in any story that he is part of. I like the idea of just doing that in every story. So, for instance, Wolverine, Les Miserables, or Wolverine, The Trial. Wolverine, Little Women. Okay, that's actually the best. That makes me happy. I feel like he'd get along with Joe. I think he really would. This reminds me, too, of the Vin Diesel game, the Vin Diesel is, etc. Vin Diesel is Wolverine, the imitation game. So many layers. <laughs> like a clawed onion. Um, regardless. That sounds terrible. Why would you, why would you do that? A clawed onion? Yeah. I, I would probably not, personally. Oh, God, I'm imagining this is a bad horror movie now, and it's like, and you thought other onions made you cry. Ooh, nice tagline. Right? Okay, well, now that we've accomplished a great deal in explaining this story as we've introed it, um, maybe we should talk about the actual plot. We should. And I gotta say, man, every once in a while, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is that we read stories I would never have looked at otherwise. And some that I had sort of looked at and deliberately skipped over because they just didn't look interesting to me. Beauty and the Beast was one of those. That was so great. And Wolverine Reign of Terra is another one. This is a story I probably wouldn't have gone for just on the description, and I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I mean, it's very strange, especially for this era, but it's a cool take. It's a cool chance to see some creators who are going to become quite prominent kind of uh, get their feet wet. It's a cool chance to see some of their tendencies come out early. So Peter David, who loves wordplay, has in fact named a book Reign of Terror. Get it? Like Reign of Terror? Because it sounds like it, even though it has nothing to do with it. Get it? I actually find this very charming, even though many of his puns are quite questionable. So our story opens with Wolfsbane in a straitjacket, screaming, let me out, let me out. And we should say, we're going to be clipping between multiple versions of the characters. If we refer to them by their superhero names, you can assume it's the standard 616 versions. If we refer to them by first names, fair to assume that these are the Geshem versions. We'll do our best to keep that consistent. We'll see how it goes. We'll try. And so, yeah, Rain is in a straitjacket, or Wolfsbane, I should say. And the New Mutants are all being very concerned because apparently what happened is that Rain started claiming she was not the person they thought she was, that she was in the wrong place. And the New Mutants, not knowing what else to do, put her in a straitjacket and locked her in a room. Really? Really, New Mutants? How many telepaths exist in your universe? How many telepaths do you fucking have on speed dial right now? Well, and I think this takes place after Days of Future Present when they met Mr. Fantastic. I'm sure he would have some kind of machine to help in this situation. Well, and they'd been living with X-Factor, so they're in touch with Jean Grey. Oh, right. There is that whole thing. And they're in the Marvel Universe, and for fuck's sake. But, um... No, and she's not violent. She's not going into her wolf form. She's not trying to harm herself or others. They're just like, nope, she's confused. It's straitjacket time. Yeah, she keeps yelling about wondering where her knights are, where the mage is, where her castle is, and talking about the world of Geshem. This is not an appropriate or acceptable approach to mental health care, Cable. What the hell is wrong with you? I mean, that's a rhetorical question because so much, and we've already done two entire episodes on that. But yeah, yeah, no, not okay. Lodging my official objections. So Rain calms down a little bit and Cable explains to her who everyone is because she doesn't seem to recognize anyone. And the new mutants at this point are Cannonball, Sunspot, Richter, and Boom Boom. And Wolf Spain is particularly shocked by the last of those code names. You've lost your mind. You expect me to... Boom Boom? What kind of a stupid name is Boom Boom? Whoa, that's pretty acid, Rain. Okay, acid Rain? Peter David, you scamp! 
I mean, the puns, they just keep going through. Is that even a pun? Or is it just clever wordplay? Or is it just wordplay? It's really just wordplay. Well, regardless. There's a point where it might become sort of word compulsion. Word compulsion? I'll take that. And the New Mutants are concerned because they care about Rain. She's always been the most, you know, innocent, in some ways fragile member of their team. They all feel very protective toward her. And they're not really sure what to do. And they're also pretty sure that Cable is not handling this well. Sunspot is the first to voice his objection. Wish Professor X was here. I didn't hear that, Roberto. Repeat it. It was nothing. Repeat it. I said I wish Professor X was here. Were here, not was. Were. And for what it's worth, so do I. So I really enjoy, if not the execution, then the concept of Cable as the mentor of the New Mutants. And um, I like the idea... When you say execution, do you mean execution or execution? I mean, probably execution. But I like the idea of him not only like training them to do militaristic battle with a world that hates and fears them, but also to do militaristic grammar with the world that hates and fears them. Yeah, because Cable is a fucking Ravenclaw. We've established this canonically and with absolute certainty in our definitive and unassailable list of such things. Yes, which you can purchase in the Jane Miles Explain the X-Men zine at various conventions if you come see us. We explicitly only put it in the zine because the zine doesn't have a comment section. <laughs> yes. We know how the internet feels about Harry Potter. We've seen things. Oh, the things we've seen. We also know how the internet feels about X-Men, talking about things that we can't unsee. As Cable goes off to admonish the other new mutants about proper use of the subjunctive... Rain is left crying in her straitjacket, and her tears form a puddle through which we transition to a very, very different place and a very different man. This is the mage, and he is running through the rain, and he is also kind of Cable. He looks like Cable with a beard. Does that mean Strife is possessing him? Because the first time Cable drew a beard in continuity, it was because Strife was in his head. Yeah, but that was a shitty goatee, so I'm going to assume that this is just a version of Cable who, you know, has a beard. Okay. okay. Well, as a, uh, as a noted beard fan, I will certainly get behind that. And yeah, he's running through a swamp, and one of my favorite little details is that his wizard staff is warlock. Like, it's got little googly warlock eyes and warlock hair at the top. Oh, that's so good. It's that's, a good idea, right? Yeah. And he takes a moment to talk to Rain's face in a scrying pool that he makes in a river. He says that he's had no choice but to send her away lest the prophecy of the beast consume her. This is a capital B beast, no relation to Hank McCoy. And just as he's doing this, talking to a river about not Hank McCoy... Wolverine, in, you know, his brown and orange outfit of this era, violently poses forward. Can you really pose forward? Is that a thing that's possible? Well, Wolverine sure as hell can. Let me see the panel. You are not wrong. That is, in fact, exactly what he does. He violently poses forward. I, I sit corrected. Now, Cable is not particularly surprised by said violent posing. So you are the long-awaited beast. Who would have thought you'd dress so garishly? So not only is he grammar pedant Cable, but he's also fashion police Cable. He's kind of like Batman. He's just really good at everything. Okay. You know, he trained in some horrible uh, Ascani-run, scarred future to know all about fashion. There was like Ascani Tim Gunn or something. That's weirdly easy to picture. Right? Like the Ascani are just trying to, you know, build some kind of desperate makeshift fortress against Apocalypse. There's acid rain dripping in, just wanders through in a suit. Make it work. So the warlock staff, uh, as Cable is struck down, or rather as the mage is struck down, turns into a giant warlocky angry monster. And I gotta say, I love the way Cubert draws warlock in his sort of war form here. Yeah, he's very, very protean in the ways that we tend to dig um, in representations of warlock. But he's huge and legitimately menacing. And 
Unfortunately, he is not enough to stop Wolverine. Wolverine is here with a mission, and we know he's here with a mission because he yells his mission over and over and over and over. Kill the princess. Wolverine, Wolverine, no, you're playing Super Mario Brothers all wrong, man. It's a mod. It's a pretty fucked up mod. Apparently. But yeah, he just cuts the crap out of Warlock until Warlock is just this kind of twisted, broken, scared-looking stick, which I gotta say, if Warlock's gonna get his ass kicked, then that's the way you're supposed to draw him. So again, well done, Qbert. Although that really wouldn't stop him. Well, no, but you can tell he's uh, having a bad day, having been cut all to hell. He can well, be and, and this isn't Warlock as we have come to know him any more than the wizard himself is Cable. They are interrupted by a scream, and Wolverine heads off, um, you know, once again reminding himself of, of his true mission. Hear her scream like that. Then cut her voice out. Cut out her voice and her heart. Drink her blood. Feast, 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 feast the beast. Kill, 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 kill. Welp. He kind of reminds me of, like, coked-up Eric Beale from that recent Dazzler issue we covered. Yeah, you are not wrong. It's very Eric Beale. I think they would get along well, and a lot of people would die. Either that, or they'd just sort of keep going back and forth and keep each other entertained. It would be... Oh, God, it would be like the time those two sex spots on Twitter got into a logic loop conversation. Oh, man, I was just I just had rap battles on the brain from when we were talking to Quinn a second ago. So I'd imagine like a coked up murderous rap battle. No, I think reaching the AI singularity via sex spots is a much better analogy, mostly just because it's sort of a vaguely comforting one. Okay, well, I'll buy that. Like, I'd like to think that when robots become sentient, they're just going to send each other saucy messages instead of trying to kill us all. That sounds way better than a robot apocalypse. I know, right? They have to actually take one offline to get them to stop. (laughs) Do I have to separate you two? Apparently. So as all of this violence is occurring, we cut to a much more idyllic place, which is to say a very nice bedroom. Yeah, we cut to Princess Rain waking up in her bedroom. She is at home here. She knows where she is. She obviously hasn't lost her mind. I should mention, by the way, that Wolverine, uh, through that whole sequence, was wearing his normal brown and orange costume. Right, you know, from good old Earth 616, our main reality. And this Rain is dressed in the garb of the realm, and she is attended by her lady-in-waiting, Tabby, who has major, major concerns because there is a prophecy hanging over Rain's head. This Rain is a little bit older than 616 Rain. She is approaching her 16th birthday, and it has been prophesied that... On her 16th birthday, the princess will be consumed by the beast, blood will flow, and the kingdom will fall. This is going to turn out to be a metaphor for menstruation, isn't it? I mean, what isn't a metaphor for menstruation? See? Yeah, so Rain is in the bath and she is protesting to her servant Tabby that she doesn't need to worry about the prophecy. Tis rubbish. There's nothing special about me. When Richter appears to say, You look special from here, Highness. Oh, Julio, you creep. Except, here's the thing. So, Richter, or Richard as he's called in Geshem, is, um, you know, he's very sleazy, but Rain is always sort of amused or smiling whenever he is flirting with her. So, like, I feel okay about it. I get the impression that this is an established dynamic that they have. Rain's comfortable with it. Richard is comfortable with it. You know, there's nothing too creepy about it. Yeah, it definitely seems to be part of how they talk but still like don't just bust into people's bathrooms and say shit like that well i mean not random people's bathrooms god now i'm imagining the kool-aid man (laughs) or i guess x factor (laughs) yes early x factor just bursting through whatever walls are nearby what does disturb her though is a brief vision she has she sees sir richard as a very different young man one who is wearing leather pants and a vest with no shirt uh, with spiky hair specifically modern new mutants richter exactly so you know 
That's confusing. Now, as all this is going on below, a peasant named Doug, I'm just going to call him Doug the Peasant. Yeah, I like that his name isn't Douglas. It's not medievalified. Like, he's still just Doug. Okay, so a peasant named Doug the Peasant is watching the castle from below with his mother, and he sees rain. She's so beautiful. No, 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 you can't do this. For Doug the Peasant, you got to make him sound like like freaking Oliver Twist. Like, play it way up. You got this. I'm not doing a British accent. Well, you know, you can still change it. She's so beautiful. She makes the morning air tingle, Mother. When I'm a grown man... I'm going to marry her. See, that wasn't so hard, was it? Is that acceptable? Totally, yes. Okay. But Doug the peasant's mother completely disagrees. Not because, you know, Doug is poor and the princess is rich. No, because she says, the prophecy says she's going to get gutted and she's going to die. You're in love with a dead girl, son. I'm not so sure she's a very good mother. Well, maybe that's what I'm into, mother. Don't judge me. We live in a cruel and harsh world in cruel and harsh times. Doug the peasant, you have some messed up fetishes. Look, mother, we're in a terrible medieval analog, and my 616 counterpart is himself dead, and clearly there's some universal bleed through. Whatever, my son Doug the peasant, you can't drink the water around here, so I'm just going to go get sloshed and not think about this. We'll probably all die of the plague anyway. As you might imagine, Jay and I are reporting this comic exactly as it happens. It's just all on the page. We're just reading dialogue at this point. It's out of print. You'll never know. That's right. That's probably not true. So as all this is going on, we see another character. There's a muscly, bare-armed, mulleted Sam Guthrie, apparently. He's riding his horse Pendragon, who leads him to the river where he finds the smashed-up warlock staff. I gotta say, between this and the Asgardian Wars, making Sam Guthrie look kind of medieval makes him invariably look super awesome, and I fully approve. I would argue that Sam Guthrie looks pretty awesome all the time. Well, right, but you know, when he has a mullet and armor, I mean, honestly, that probably would improve things for most people. You have a really specific aesthetic, Miles. Hey man, I'm just doing me. Unfortunately, Sam only briefly gets to ride around looking resplendent because he is set upon fairly quickly by Mr. Kill the Princess himself. Right, Wolverine shows up and attacks Sam, and so Sam summons Cannonball to him, which in this world is a steampunky-looking blunderbuss, and just blasts off with what will turn out to be Seven League boots. Like, that's one of the conceits I love about this story, which is that all the characters with superpowers get them from magical artifacts. Yeah, and they're mostly traditional magical artifacts significantly repurposed. For instance, I have read a lot of folklore and fairy tales, and I am fairly solid that Seven League boots are not traditionally just straight-up rocket boots, which is definitely what Sir Sam's got. I'm not invulnerable when I'm taking one step that takes me seven leagues. Sure you are, Sam. And yeah, big fight. Sam thankfully is able to shoot the hell out of Wolverine after he flies into the sky, knocking him down to the ground. And back in Earth-616, back in the main Marvel Universe as we know it, our cannonball, our Sam Guthrie, is kind of creeped out. He feels weird. He mentions to Cable. Just got this weird feeling, like I just had a close shave for no reason. Happens to everyone. When I was a boy, it was called, someone just stepped on my grave. But Sam, instead of our personal idiosyncrasies, we should be concerned about rain. Ah, the obscure idioms of the 40th century. <laughs> exactly. Now, as this is happening in Earth-616, we cut back to Geshem itself, where Richard, which is to say the Geshem version of Richter, is bragging to the other guards about seeing the princess in the altogether as she got out of the bath. He's talking to Robert, who's very clearly this world's version of Sunspot, and they're all interrupted by Rain herself and the giant grim beardy king. Who very... is distinct from the giant grim beardy mage who is a cable analog. This guy doesn't really have a 616 analog, and that's fine because he's about to die anyway. 
And uh, Richard is made to apologize. Your Majesty, I humbly beg your forgiveness and that of your daughter. Please, 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 please. And he winks secretly to Rain, who and is... And she smiles back. And the uh, other guards apologize for Richard, saying he's been drinking some very strong booze. And I love this part because the way they demonstrate how strong the booze is to prove their point is that Robert, the Sunspot equivalent, pours some out and then sets it on fire? Is that how you tell how strong booze is? Is that a standard method of proofing? Like, hey, let me spit some hooch on this Zippo. Oh, yep, looks like it's 80 proof. Is that how that works? I mean, I don't know what you do for fun. But no, what I was going to say, I assumed that this was supposed to at least vaguely evoke Sunspot's name or powers. I was mistaken. This is, in fact, Chekhov's highly flammable hard liquor, and we're going to come back to it much later in the story. This is such a strangely constructed story. Like, random stuff just happens and it all ends up tying in. Like, everything works and everything has a reason for being there, but it seems very arbitrary when it happens the first time around. What I find bizarre about this is that clearly Peter David or someone thought it was essential to set up hard liquor burns as a premise in this story, that this was not something we could take for granted. You know, given what happens later, I actually kind of love the way it's set up, but we'll get to that shortly. No sooner has uh, Sir Robert completed his demonstration when Sir Samuel flies in in his seven-league rocket boots, demanding to speak to the king. He looks for a moment again like 616 Sam, but quickly reverts to his normal self. And the king, instead of immediately saying, well, you know, what's wrong, what's happening, uh, takes a minute to scold Sam for wearing his seven-league boots indoors, which he is not supposed to do. And also, don't run with those vorpal scissors. It's not safe. I do love this idea, though, the whole, like, getting powers from magical artifacts. Like, we find out that uh, Richard, Richter, has a quake hammer that he uses for his seismic powers, and, like, Robert has this suit of armor that lets him go into his sunspot form. It's just fun. I mean, the part of me that loves both X-Men and medieval role-playing games is quite pleased. The character analogs are very, very cleverly done. They're not all super obvious or intuitive, which I actually really, really appreciate. I mean, I think Cable's the most obvious one in terms of unlikely cross-casting. But again, it works well. And one of the fun things about stories like this about Elseworlds and alternate universes is that it gives the writers a chance to play with and readers a chance to see and emphasize facets and aspects of characters that don't tend to get played with very much or played up very much in the 616, which impressions you then take back with you to the central version of the character. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, we talk about a lot of alternate realities here, partially because that's just X-Men and partially because we enjoy covering weird stuff like Reign of Terra. But I think it all does add to it. I think we do learn a little bit more about who Wolfsbane is and who Cable is and that sort of thing in this story. And because in any long enough running shared universe superhero comic... You essentially get that no matter what, even if they're technically in the same universe. You know, we talk a lot about you know, Simonson's version of this character, Claremont's version of that character and so forth. And the characters, yeah, you know, the canonical 616 characters differ as much over time from themselves as they do from their alternate universe counterparts a lot of the time. It's so dependent on, on era, so dependent on creative team that, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel like we're delving into that whether or not we're going to alternate universes, we are looking at, you know, these multiple and varied versions and comparing them and looking at them over time is a huge part of the fun of doing what we do. Now, what's going on here is that Sam is warning the king about what he saw, warning the king about this bestial knife hand murder uncle man who attacked him. And the king is freaked out because the king knows the prophecy. A beast! My God! Samuel, take as many men as you can spare! Comb the countryside, find it, and kill it! Tomorrow is my daughter's birthday. I will have its head before then, or I'll have all of yours. 
Father, it's only superstition. You're always like this. You've always been afraid of me. You've always... No, wait, that's that's not you. That's my father. He... And it's really clear that this Princess Rain is starting to get flashes of Rain Sinclair of Earth 616's past, of her horrible, horrible father-slash-priest-that-raised-her guy, Father Craig. It's crossing over more and more, and she's having trouble figuring out which reality is which, for reasons we don't yet know yet, but certainly will. And then the king has a heart attack and collapses. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. He just sort of, like, suddenly dies, you know, his last wish being for everyone to protect his daughter. Like, I know that he's not a character in the main reality, and this isn't exactly our version of the New Mutants, but still, harsh, your dad just keeling over? Miles, this is a fairy tale style fantasy adventure. The main character is contractually required to be an orphan. You're just lucky they didn't have to burn her hometown first. That's a very good point, actually. Thank you. All right, well, you know, give her a wooden sword and some cloth armor and send her on her way to fight rabbits in the woods. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the kingdom, we meet our antagonist. This is an elderly man in a dark cape and flowing purple outfit and a remarkably familiar metal helmet. He's got Wolverine chained to a big wooden axe, and this is... Magnus. This is Geshem's equivalent of Magneto. Uh, here, however, he is an evil wizard. I really enjoy the character design of this character because he feels like he totally fits the world of Geshem, but you still get that iconic Magneto design in his helmet without it looking like he's wearing something, you know, from a different world. Well, I think that's because main Magneto canonically basically dresses like a slightly snazzier, slightly better-tailed evil wizard. He does. And God bless him, more power to him. Right? I mean, we've talked a lot about Magneto's costumes and his love for, you know, intensely saturated colors and his very dramatic helmets. And what that means is that when you put him in a fantasy setting, like, he just basically has to have a couple costume lines redrawn and he's good to go. So Magneto, like any good villain, is explaining a bit of his evil plan to Wolverine, who actually recognizes him as Magneto, not Magnus, his name in this world. Magnus thinks that that's ridiculous. I wonder if Magnus thinks that Wolverine's just making fun of him by calling him Magneto. Like if he's just trying to make some kind of play on his name. Maybe. Well, he doesn't seem to because he seems to quickly realize that this is a Wolverine from a different world where Magnus must be called Magneto. He knows that he brought this Wolverine in from a different reality. And he specifically brought this Wolverine to Geshem to help fulfill the prophecy. Magnus wants the castle and he wants the land under it because... They are the conduits to the power of the kingdom of Geshem itself. The king is afraid to tap it, feeling it can lead to ultimate good or ultimate evil. What nonsense. There's no such thing as good men or evil men. We're all just men. And yeah, I mean, this is a very different version of Magneto, but that right there, that kind of utilitarianism, that kind of moral, I guess rigid moral relativism, maybe you could call it. That cape. That cape. It kind of works for me. So yeah, he's brought Wolverine in to be the beast, to kill the princess so he can take over the kingdom. And to kill the one person who has a chance of stopping him, who is right now crawling out of the river where Wolverine had left him for dead. This is the mage of Geshem, the cable analog. And he says as he drags himself out, The mage of the land of Geshem is not as easily dispatched as all that. Close to it, though. Too close. Damn. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Yes, he said the line. I feel like Cable has to say that line as often as possible. I really wish that they'd had him say it more in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. When he was like 10? Yeah. <laughs> I like that too. Well, he could say it, you know, reluctantly and kind of sadly about his favorite toys. I'm getting too old for this kind of thing. This is a great plan. Now I want to go with some whiteout and Sharpies. And No, no, I don't want to mess with those issues. I love those issues. We can photocopy them and you can mess with the photocopies. Perfect. Or we can use bad graphics editing software, which is all we have. 
Back in Earth 616, our Boom Boom, not the Handmaiden Tabby, goes to comfort the straitjacketed Rain and talk a bit to her. Look, Rain, we've had our, you know, differences. And, you know, your whole nice bit has made me want to barf. And I wish you'd be less apple pie wonderful than you are. But man, you gotta believe me, I never would have wished this on you. Come on, babe, snap out of this, huh? For me? I like this version of Boom Boom who's starting to grow up a little. Like, it actually makes me wish that Peter David had had more of a chance to write the character. Well, and a Boom Boom who only drops the cynicism when she's talking to someone who's clearly not entirely aware of what's going on around her. I feel like this is the kind of Boom Boom who's really mean to someone and then apologizes to them while they're asleep. Yeah, I mean, Boom Boom is just so, she's she's fragile, she's defensive, and she uses that that anger and that meanness almost, I think, to just keep people at arm's length, and I, I don't know, that just makes her really endearing to me. Yeah, no, I love Boom Boom, she is great. Boom Boom forever. The straight-jacketed Rain just mutters something about her father being dead, and we get another nice panel transition going from Boom Boom holding straight-jacketed Rain to the handmaiden Tabby holding medieval-looking Princess Rain in the same position. And this Rain is heartbroken because she has been told that she is not allowed to go to her father's funeral because tradition requires that it happen at midnight, and in this case, the midnight in question is the one that leads directly into her 16th birthday when she will presumably be consumed by a beast and so forth. And as Rain bemoans, Tabby tries to convince her to not worry about it, to just be safe and relax a little. Come away from the window, Highness. There's nothing you can do. Oh, yes. Yes, there is! And she punches Tabby right in the face and knocks her out. And I gotta say, these panels, if you take her out of context, just look like a girl being nice to another girl and that girl randomly punching her for no reason, which for some reason I find hilarious. I do like the idea of the response to there's nothing you can do to be just to turn and punch the person next to you. It's like, well, maybe not about that, but I can do this, damn it. Right. Sort of humanity in a nutshell, actually. And so she quickly changes clothes with the unconscious Tabby and runs the hell away. To... She switches their clothes. She doesn't just change both of their clothes. That well, would be yes. really weird. She trades clothes so that the various guards who look in don't realize she's gone. She's not a Morlock. She doesn't dress people in fancy costumes while they're unconscious. <laughs> right. And she goes to, you know, pay her respects to her father. The funeral's over at this point, but at least there's the graveyard. And on the way, there's also Doug the Peasant. And Rain is shocked to see him because, again, she's getting flashes from 616 Rain, and so her immediate response is, Doug, you're... you're dead. No, Highness, I didn't know. Don't have me killed, please. Poor Doug the Peasant. Poor Doug the Peasant not only thinks logically that his sovereign is about to have him executed, but he's miscolored and he's drawn such that he's got the wrong color hair, and he has lost Doug's signature hair swoop. Oh, he lost his Alan Davis swoop. That's I tragic. Know. I assume that that's a class issue here, that the peasants don't get to have swoopy hair, that that's a status reserved for nobles and knights. Man, monarchy sucks. Right? Now, as this is going on, I mean, you know, everyone's trying to make sure that Rain's okay. And Sam, the flying captain or whatever of the Royal Guard, hears things smashing around in Rain's room. Turns out Tabby woke up and has been kicking a bunch of stuff, even though she's tied up to try to make enough noise to get someone's attention. And Tabby sends him off to find the princess, but not before saying, Can't you see clearly now that Rain has gone? 
Peter David. Peter David, no. Peter. Okay, no, Peter David, yes. I love this. I love all of the no, terrible rain no, references. Don't encourage him. Peter David, you are a bad man and you should be ashamed of yourself. Are you like whacking Peter David on the nose with a newspaper or something? I don't want to overvalidate Peter David for puns. <laughs> a totally pun-free newspaper right in the face. It doesn't have to be pun-free, but I feel like that one, that was a step too far. A song reference too far? It's true. It's true. I accepted Reign of Terra. How about Acid Rain? I accepted, well, I just glared a little bit at Acid Rain, but this, this is where you write an entire scene to justify a pun. This is about to hit like the Piers Anthony point on the pun meter, and we don't want to go there. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of story to get through on this podcast. I cannot spend four hours talking about panties right now. I mean, that's probably for the best. Yeah, let's stay in Geshem and not Xanth. It's just safer that way. Thank God. (laughs) Well, one thing that's not safe is the graveyard, because guess whose evil claw murder uncle daddy is there waiting for rain? Is Wolverine technically anyone's uncle? I mean, probably. He's had a lot of kids, and I think he's got some siblings. Does he have siblings? I guess he has a half-sibling. Yeah, he's got a half-sibling, but I don't think his half-sibling had kids. Oh, well, you know, give it a few years. I'm sure we'll have some kind of retcon. He's probably someone's godparent, which is a little bit scary. I don't ever want him to be any child of mine's godparent. Remember that time he adopted a kid and then just kind of ditched her? I do. She turned out, well, sort of okay. But we digress. So, yes, Wolverine attacks Princess Rain and Doug in the graveyard, and Doug does his best to protect her. And there's actually some genuine tension here, because we remember that in Earth-616, Doug Ramsey died protecting Rain Sinclair. And Princess Rain, since she's getting visions of Earth-616 and what's been going on there— She's terrified. She doesn't want Doug to die again, especially not protecting her. Meanwhile, however, Wolverine is getting ongoing narration and orders from Magnus, and it is 100% delightful. My favorite part of this issue is Magnus yelling instructions in Wolverine's head. Right, like there's this one point where Wolverine's basically trying to like push his face through a door that Rain has closed herself behind, and Magnus is just like, don't just hack at the door like some mindless idiot. Pull on it. Yours is the superior strength. There she is. Helpless. Succulent. Yours. The parts where he chides Wolverine and tries to find the right commands to get him to do things kind of remind me of a text-based adventure game, you know. Go north! You can't go north, bub. You cannot get ye flask. Use door on princess. Use claws on door? I... Do you remember that old Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy text adventure? I could never get anywhere, and I could never find out what I was supposed to type. That's kind of appropriate. I guess it kind of is, yeah. But regardless, there's this terrifying scene as Magnus attempts to telepathically type commands into a a text interpreter. And that, again, it's a tangent further, um, and I'm not even going to apologize, takes me straight to Deadpool and X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, right. Remember the text adventure assassin where he has a two-finger type in decapitate? That movie... There were some decisions made in that movie. That movie is a crystal gem of pure loveliness in this fallen world, Miles, and I will not have you talk smack about it. Well, I wouldn't dream of it then. I mean, admittedly, it's irredeemably awful, but you got to admit that it's also just spectacularly, amazingly enjoyable. I mean, decapitate. It is an impressive accomplishment. He's operated by fucking DOS. Yup. Uh, Oh, I love that movie. Well, speaking of old-timey things, I guess, yeah, let's use that as a segue. Is... 
Is it yeah, really yeah. old timey at this point? You know, old timey ish. It's all uh, what do you call it? PowerShell. I don't know. I'm a Mac guy. I forget what it's called these days with Windows. Oh, I guess DOS is old timey. I was thinking X Men Origins Wolverine. I don't think that quite counts as old timey yet. No, no antique plates on that one. In fact, I think the DMV wouldn't give that license plates. They just consign it to you know a back lot somewhere. I, I assume that they'd put it in a vault in a warehouse along with the Ark of the Covenant and other things that should never be allowed out to damage humanity. But so are you saying that if you look directly at X Men Wolverine's origin, your face melts off? Yeah. Okay. I'm glad I haven't done so, apparently. Speaking of old-timey things, I'm keeping that segue. The New Mutant equivalents of Geshem are coming to the rescue. They realize that clearly Rain has gone, and they go to save her from Wolverine. And they do so at significant cost. They engage Wolverine, but he is the best at what he does, and what he does in this is yell about how he's going to kill princesses and cut through anything he gets in his way. He manages to take down the guard, and a very apologetic Doug keeps on sort of hustling Rain along and trying to get her out of danger. Doug, will you stop being so damned humble? Okay. Move your butt, your highness. It's kind of adorable. And as they go, he does his best to protect her because Wolverine has cut through most of the guards. They're still, I think, alive, but he's on his way to the princess. Keep going. I'll be fine. I'll be... Dead. You'll be dead. Not again. I can't allow it. I won't allow it. I won't. I won't. And she turns into a goddamn werewolf. Go, Rain. And it's implied that this is something that has never happened to her before, that Princess Rain doesn't know that she's a teenage werewolf. Her companions, however, accept it with remarkable equanimity. Like, it's just NBD. Well, they don't have time to worry about it because there's a Wolverine coming after them. So they do manage to all escape into the castle and raise the drawbridge. And I love this part because Wolverine starts wading through the moat, gets attacked by the moat monsters, which are basically alligators. Giant alligators, sort of primeval alligators. Kills one and uses it as a shield to protect himself from the air arrows that the guards are firing down upon him. That is just badass. I don't care what the context is. I fully approve of that. Okay, so we're adding using an alligator as a shield to the list of official badass moments. By the way, I didn't mention it, but you know what I appreciate about this bit? What's that? When Rain transforms, her clothing doesn't stay intact, but it stays pretty on. That's true, yeah. Which I appreciate. Again, and I, I know I use this paraphrase repeatedly, but it always works. Rain's pretty young. We try not to sexualize her. <laughs> right. Now, Wolverine does, with his alligator shield, manage to get into the castle, slaughter a bunch of guards, and confront our heroes, at which point there's a giant boom. It's Tabby, and Tabby is throwing bottles of booze at him. Remember how I mentioned uh, Chekhov's highly inflammable, high-proof liquor? Exactly. Yeah, she's nice. got a, Yeah, she's got a torch, too, and so finally that irrationally complicated setup pays off. It kind of reminds me of in the Age of Apocalypse X Universe miniseries where there's a little allusion to Don Blake picking up a stick that could maybe be Mjolnir and there's a lot of pathos and stuff, except more explodey. Yeah, except that that's a really dramatic, amazing, powerful, beautiful, well-written moment, and this is just kind of goofy. But goofy in the best way. Oh yeah, it's great. It's just, I think that we are uh, seeing this, this, this analogy in very different ways. Well, perhaps. But what's also awesome and goofy is that Wolverine, who is, you know, catching on fire and having his clothes and hair and skin burn away, is just yelling, mugging at the panel camera, THE BEAST! So basically at this point, he is an enormous, enraged, immolating Pokemon. Uh, kind of. I mean, he's not that enormous. He's like, what, 5'3"? I guess he's that's enormous than, for a Pokemon. I don't know. There's I a, think. Snorlax is pretty big, right? He can block I, roads. I don't, I don't actually know anything about Pokemons. I have a lot of trouble getting past the basic premise. You'd also have a lot of trouble getting past Snorlax because he blocks roads. But he seems pretty chill. Like, you could probably just walk around him. Yeah, it's an RPG, not really. 
And if yelling on fire Wolverine isn't enough of a threat, Magnus, the evil wizard, now joins him. The castle's wards are gone, which means the mage must be dead, which means that Magnus himself can come right in and take reign. He doesn't even need the intervention of the beast anymore. And she initially calls him Magneto, another flash of Earth-616 coming through, and he starts to understand what's going on, that Princess Rain, in fact, is not Princess Rain. She's not from this world any more than Wolverine is. Because while Magnus imported Wolverine from Earth-616, apparently the mage imported Rain Sinclair and replaced Princess Rain with her and just, like, swapped their memories. Right, and we're going to find out later that the reason this Rain, that Rain-616 eased into her role better while her counterpart is stuck in a straitjacket is that Geshem is a fundamentally magical land, and so the spell lasted here and it wore off much, much faster for Princess Rain while she was on regular Earth where magic is much less effective. Which is actually, I think, a pretty good justification for that. But Magnus doesn't get far because the mage is not, in fact, dead. He is here and he shows up, apparently to confront Magnus, who is ready for him. You wish to cross mystic might with me. You wish to hurl spells and challenge me with your pathetic abilities. Actually, I just wish you to shut the hell up. And he shoots Magnus through the heart with a crossbow. I love this part so much. It's like Indiana Jones shooting the sword guy and cutting the fight short. But it's Cable and he would totally do that even if he is just the mage right now. Okay, is I just wish you to shut the hell up the best burn or what? I mean, I kind of like you have reason to go to the devil. Cable has really good grammatically questionable burns, apparently. I just wish you to shut the hell up. And go to the devil. With reason. (laughs) Perfect. Done. Print it. Yeah, it's fun. Unfortunately, that doesn't work because as we find out, Magnus has no heart. And you know what? Given the world that's been set up here, given the set of logic we have, like, okay, I'll totally buy it. The evil wizard has no heart? Fine. That's totally okay. Yeah, I'm down. And he taps into the land's magic and he starts to grow huge. But with his attention thus taken, Wolverine starts to break away from his spell with a moment of kind of amazingly nonsense monologuing. The beast. There is no idiot. I'm not the beast. I'm the best. The best there is at what I do. And what I do is whatever the hell I want. And what I want, most of all, right now, is to show the two-bit Merlin who dragged me here that he screwed with the wrong mutant. I'm imagining this is the tagline of a Wolverine book. He's the best there is at what he does. And what he does is show the two-bit Merlin who dragged him here that he screwed with the wrong mutant. And then Wolverine just like goes to Madripoor and gets in a fist fight with a gangster. You know, I'm a big fan of like random VHS tapes at your local blockbuster that now no longer exists where the the text on the back just has very little to do with the actual plot. It keeps you on your toes. Or book covers or comic covers where everything is just red herrings. And so as Magnus goes into his war form, apparently, and just turns into a goddamn giant and steps on the mage. It's not his war form. It's because he's absorbing all of the power from the land and from the palace. He is growing in proportion to his magic, I think. Okay, well, as he turns into his big form, there we go. I do love, oh, they have one of his purple hands reaching through the window, so he's not just the Magneto equivalent. He also basically plays a sentinel briefly. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it's a it's a clever touch. And so Princess Rain, or, you know, Rain Sinclair as the case may be, it's ambiguous at this point, asks the mage, well, can't he just tap into the magic and do the same thing? And I love his explanation. He claims that to tap into the magic, as Magnus is doing, one must be totally corrupt, and the mage himself is only mostly corrupt. He's only mostly corrupt. 
Wolverine, however, has a plan. Uh, Wolverine goes into some, again, kind of amazingly nonsense captions about how really no skeleton that big could support a guy, but clearly this dude doesn't know it because if he did, he'd fall. So someone just has to, you know, find his ear and get the message to him. You know, the heart um, is only a single cell. Oh, I'm so glad you went there. I've been trying to find a place to work in an Amazing Colossal Man reference, and you made it, and this is why we're a good team, Miles. This right here. Excellent. This is like our fastball special. <laughs> our obscure reference special. Yep. So, yes, he says he has to get Magnus's ear, and so, because this is Peter David, what he then does is jump literally into Magnus's ear. So, actually, this, I think, is what was bugging me about the pun thing. It's not like I have no problem with puns. Puns are fine. Puns are entertaining. But there are points in this where Peter David seems more interested in wordplay than in writing the story where it takes precedent. And that annoys me. That's the sort of virtuoso performance that I don't think is a fundamental problem, but is out of place in a narrative where the writer has another job to do, where his personal predilections and tics end up displacing the flow of the narrative. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's a one-shot. It's a little bit silly, so I'm okay with it. But I think if there were this level of focus on wordplay in, like, an ongoing, that wouldn't work as well. I mean, you see some of it in his first run on X-Factor, certainly. But, you know, not quite, can't you see clearly now that Rain has gone? Here's what I know. I know that a Cable who cares about the subjunctive case would never fucking put up with this kind of nonsense. If he had Cable as an editor, none of this would have flown. That's probably true. But yeah, so as Magnus is about to murder the hell out of everyone, including, including, as he says, Reign of Terra, because, you know, now he knows she's from Earth. So, hey, there's your title. Oh, yeah. Terra is what the Geshem folks call the 616. And we should also point out while we're listing off puns that I believe Geshem is Hebrew for rain, right? Yes, I believe it is. So we've got Reign of Terra and Reign of Rain. So as he's about to murder everyone, he suddenly screams in agony and starts making noises and blood starts coming out of his nose and his ears. And Wolverine just rockets out his other ear, the opposite one that he went in, in this geyser of blood, because apparently the way he explains to someone that their skeleton would be crushed because they were so large is by just, you know, playing Cuisinart inside their brain. God damn, Logan. Which, again, is how Wolverine takes down Sentinels. So, again, he's graduated from Magneto to Sentinel. And so the mage is dead and Wolverine, as he falls from this great height, gets in, you know, some snarky one-liner stuff and just vanishes but rain our rain apparently is still here and she is furious at the mage it turns out by the way that wolverine has popped back because magnus's magic was holding him there and with magnus dead he's returned to his own dimension and the mage says at this point that wolverine is unique to terra he is unique to his dimension obviously later on this will turn out to be completely untrue yeah, but at the time, Claremont had certainly brought up the idea that the Phoenix Force was unique in the universe, that there was only one of it across the various universes. And that's why, for instance, in the Crosstime Caper, Rachel Summers' connection to the Phoenix Force and that Jean Grey's connection to the Phoenix Force meant that they were, like, super, super linked because it was the same Phoenix Force. But yeah, this Wolverine one, I don't think that's ever really addressed again. And it's, No, we know for sure that he isn't because he's got multiversal analogs. Well, I mean, yeah, there's, uh, what is it, Governor James Howlett from Extreme x Governor Volume General two. James Howlett, dude, he earned that rank, do not decrease it, whose skeleton is lined with adamantine, the metal of the gods, and who is totally married to Hercules. And he went the to hell to save his husband. James Howlett of all time. I love that version of Wolverine. I love him so much. Yeah. And so, yes, Rain, I mean, she accepts, okay, this is what happened, but she's not pleased. Wait a minute, that's it? You bring me here without my permission to be a target? I might have died, would have, and now you send me back without so much as a word of thanks. Oh, very well. 
Thank you. And it's body swap time. The original Princess Rain is back in Geshem, and Rain Sinclair is back in Earth 616. The real Princess Rain, uh, for her first act back at home, sees with new eyes suddenly the young fellow who helped rescue her and asks who he is. I'm, I'm Doug the Peasant, your highness. I'm nobody. I mean, he doesn't actually say the peasant, but we can assume he means it. Funny, I never noticed you before. I suspect I won't make that mistake again. And then they totally hook up and he gets a robot arm. But we'll get to that later. And so, yeah, back in Earth 616, our wolf Spain, Rain Sinclair, wakes up, ripping through the straitjacket she was in when she briefly transforms into a wolf. Wait, 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 wait. Cable was insisting that she was in that straitjacket so she wouldn't hurt anyone if she went into wolf form. Obviously, that's bullshit. God damn it, Cable. God damn it, Cable, indeed. I mean, the first thing she does out of it is punch him, which I think is entirely justified. You bloody creep. It's kind of satisfying. I mean, admittedly, it's really the mage that she was mad at. But, you know, seeing Cable get punched by a 16-year-old girl just makes me happy. Again, I think Cable has earned that punch as well. And Wolfsbane does her best to explain the whole thing to her teammates, you know, the, and you were there and you were there and you were there. And they basically just tell her that, you know, that sounds like the Wizard of Oz. You were clearly dreaming. She even is thinking that she's losing her mind when a cowboy capped Wolverine appears leaning against a tree and smoking to hand her a wolf pendant and back up her story. No place like home, eh, kid? I gotta be going. Glad to see you made it back, okay? Stay healthy, princess. Stay healthy, princess, really sounds like an oblique threat. It kind of does. But yeah, so that is Reign of Terra. That is this obscure, I'm pretty sure never reprinted 1991 Wolverine pseudo-annual. It may not have been reprinted, but it was referenced again. In 1995, we saw Wolverine Night of Terra, in which Wolverine was brought back to Geshem to fight a different beast, this time Sabretooth. This is plotted by Ian Edgington with script by John Ostrander and pencils by Jan Dersema. Oh, Ostrander and Dersema. I, I love them. They did um, Star Wars Legacy, which was like my favorite Star Wars comic that Dark Horse ever did. They did, yeah. And the deal with this one, and this is actually a really clever hook to pick up on. So what it turns out at the end of Reign of Terror is that the prophecy itself was basically also wordplay. So uh, Reign was consumed by a beast when she turned into wolf form. The land fell because Magnus, who had absorbed all of the power of the land, literally just fell the hell over and so forth. But what it turns out is that by swapping out the reins, the mage actually doomed the land because the land itself, the spirit of the land, has to inhabit or possess someone who serves as a conduit for it. And because she wasn't there for her coming of age, the actual princess rain has never quite come to terms with her wolf form. She's never come to terms with the fact that she's also the beast and that's cool and that's just part of her. She's utterly rejected it. And so the beast has chosen a different host. It's possessed someone else who has effectively turned into Sabretooth. And this time, the shaman, who is Professor Xavier with a small goatee, pulls Wolverine back to deal with that dude. This time, we um instead of New Mutants, we also get to see a lot of Geshem equivalents of 616 X-Men. We've got, you know, Cyclops, Bishop, Jean Grey, Storm, Professor X, Beast, and um, briefly, again, sort of in the same very bittersweet senses as Doug, we see Ilyana, who by that point in continuity is also dead. And Rain gets swapped out as well to deal with the stuff in Geshem while Princess Rain is on Earth in normal Rain's body with Professor Xavier helping her through embracing and recognizing her wolf self. Yeah, it's actually a really fun one shot. Like I was pre prepared to hate it because when I opened it up, it was just so very 90s. Like everyone has giant muscles and super huge hair and that sort of thing. 
but it's a great creative team, even if they're doing it in a very 1995 style. It's a lot of fun. It's more straightforward than Reign of Terror was, but I think they do make a good pair. So if you can track this down in quarter bins or whatever, I mean, they're in comic shops around if, if you look for them. Definitely recommend it. And we'll have some of the art up in the as mentioned post, of course, as well. There's also a moment that I forgot to mention when we got there in continuity that for me foreshadows in Reign of Terror, foreshadows one of the more frustrating trends of the 90s. I don't know if this is a panel where Rain's hair is miscolored or where a dialogue balloon is misattributed, but there's a panel where Boom Boom delivers what's clearly a Rain line of dialogue. And when they're on the same team, there is going to be a long period of time where they are only distinguishable in terms of how they're drawn. Their faces are drawn identically. Their hairstyles are drawn almost identically. We're only going to be able to tell them apart by hair color. It's awful. And basically, it means that the colorist makes some... um fairly pivotal story decisions basically by almost happenstance it can get very confusing yeah the 90s were really all about that inconsistency here and there but they're also all about people trying new weird stuff they're about people just being so enthusiastic and having so much fun that for me the inconsistencies the editorial problems whatever like it's kind of worth it. I mean, I've I've certainly on the podcast before said many times that the 90s are not my jam but the more early 90s stuff we start doing the more I start understanding why X-Men started to get so popular, why people got so enthusiastic about this stuff, even the stuff whose quality I didn't really get. So that's fun. I'm enjoying that. Now, it's been an eventful year in the X universe, and one of the things that's happened fairly recently was the reveal of what we've come to know as the Noodle Incident. Yeah, basically what Cyclops did to piss everybody off and presumably get himself killed. Now, longtime listeners may recall that we got there before anybody else. In fact, almost a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I think, we had Dennis Hopeless on the show to explain to us exactly what the Noodle incident had been long before it was actually revealed. And for the sake of avoiding spoilers, we, of course, had to uh, bleep everything out. I mean, we didn't want to, you know, ruin things for Marvel and have them send their Marvel commandos after us. Now that the Noodle incident is common knowledge, we finally have the chance to play for you for the first time on the air. Those of you who are at Rose City have already heard most of this. Dennis Hopeless's actual unexpurgated explanation of the noodle incident that Dennis Hopeless provided us. Whoa, whoa, guys, I can't just tell you that. Okay, you know what? I bet he doesn't even know. Oh, I know. But we're talking hardcore NDA territory here. Are you sure there's no way? you got to be able look, to get around it somehow. Look, it'd be one thing to tell you three, but you've got 15,000 listeners. Marvel would fire me for sure. Oh, that's easy. We'll just bleep it out in the episode. Are you sure about this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We did it for Greg Rocco with the Corsair thing, like, way back in Episode 7. It's no problem. Okay. Cyclops, Emma Frost, and Magneto are going on a road trip to the uh, the Redwood Forest in California, right? And they're going to go camping there. It's sort of like Magneto's taking them on a on a, on a fun evening to, to camp out on the Redwood Forest. And while they're there, they meet these, they're sort of like tiny mutants, but they're called inhumans and they get their powers from the Terrigen Mists. And the Terrigen Mists have turned into these clouds that are floating around. And anyway, they run into the local law who finds out about the tiny mutants and they see Magneto talking about it. So they assume he's insane. So they throw him into like a 50 style booby hatch. And then Cyclops and Emma have to break him out and take him back to where the Inhumans are. And in Inhuman culture, <clears throat> there are more females than there are males. And in order to 
determine the mating rights for one of the males, they have to oil the male up and he gets chased around by all the females. And whichever female grabs a hold of him and holds on him longer becomes the new king of the Inhumans. And then from there, they develop more Terrigen Mists. And Cyclops gets really uncomfortable about this because of the sexual politics of him. He doesn't like it. He also thinks that small people are upsetting. So he ends up burning down the Redwood Forest, which destroys all of the terrors and mists and kills all of the Inhumans. And in the process, kills himself, badly injures Emma Frost, and Magneto goes insane. What? 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 <laughs> Dennis, I want that okay. to be canon. I want everything about that to be, especially the phrase "booby hat." That needs to be worked in somewhere. <laughs> that was that was the plot of the gnome mobile with all the names switched out. <laughs> Perfect. We, we need to save an unedited version of that, like, to release a year from now. <laughs> and if you didn't know, now you know. This being a winter special, we also have something we are legally required to do every year, which is... The 2016 Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Awards for Excellence in Excellence. We award the Corbos, named after the most competent and multi-talented man in the Marvel Universe, to the writers, artists, and titles who we feel have contributed most profoundly to the X-Universe over the past year of current X-Books, and also the classic Corbos, which go to older material that we've covered over the past year. This year, I think we are beginning with the modern Corbos. I should note that these are chosen by the very scientific process of the two of us talking about it the night before, usually fairly late while we're fairly tired, and... While they technically represent no one's opinions but our own, they are also absolutely and objectively correct and will brook no argument. We should also say these exist in actual form. If you are a creator who has won a Corbeau and we will be at an overlapping convention, let us know and we will give you one. It is real. They are physical objects. Sometimes they are wearable. They're very fancy. So let's get started with our 2016 awards with the Best X Writer. Who's our Best X Writer of 2016? Best X Writer goes to Dennis Hopeless for All New X-Men. We went back and forth here because Tom Taylor also did an amazing job on All New Wolverine, but Hopeless's ability to capture so many characters in new ways that also feel very loyal to the characters' own histories has been fun. The book is enjoyable, it goes through a gamut of emotions, and a lot of that is due to that dude's writing. Best Artist. That's Alti Fermancha for X-Men 92, although we also saw her on Star-Lord and Kitty Pride, which was fun during Secret Wars. Her work on X-Men 92, it's so exuberant and energetic, and it feels like the 90s cartoon while also feeling like something totally new. Yeah, Fermancha's art, in addition to being compelling and incredibly appealing, beautifully bridged two eras and introduced a lot of amazing new designs, we really look forward to seeing what she does next. Who's our best colorist for 2016? Our best colorist... This is an odd one because we are actually giving this on the basis of a single issue that was the first issue of a series and came out at the tail end of the year. And that is going to David Curiel for his work on Inhumans versus X-Men. It's altogether a really good series, but Curiel's coloring just blew us away in ways that I don't think any X-Book has since uh, Chris Sotomayor on Cyclops. So that's Creators. What is our best ongoing X-Series of 2016? That's got to be all new Wolverine. Who knew that a book with Wolverine in the title would turn out to be so freaking good? Who knew that a book with Wolverine in the title would end up with an actual Wolverine in its core cast? That too, but also with Laura Kinney, X-23, as the new Wolverine. I gotta say, 
I want her to stay Wolverine forever. She is amazing in this book. This is a terrific book, and it didn't win any solo corbos, partially because one of the things that we love most about it is the phenomenal, phenomenal chemistry of every creative team it's had. Writer Tom Taylor and just about every artist who's been on it, but particularly David Navarro and Lopez on the first arc, have just been absolutely unstoppable, have made this, I think, the best X-Book of the year, hands down, and the definitive Wolverine title as far as either of us is concerned. So that's ongoing. What about our best miniseries of the year? Best miniseries is Worst X-Men Ever Written by Max Bemis with art by Michael Walsh. A brightly colored and somewhat cynical, but uh, deeply nostalgic and really fun series. We're going a little bit meta now with the Good Sport Award. This is to someone who has gone above and beyond to help us out with weird shit on the podcast. That's got to go to Scott Koblish. I mean, this dude has rapped with us and performed a giant many-versed song that Jay wrote about the Summers family tree on stage. He also put up with us for five hours in a closed car. Yes, we love Scott, and not just because he was the one to first draw us into continuity. I mean, okay, maybe that biased us a little bit, but still. Yeah, he's a super, super, super good dude. The next category, and I believe we are debuting this category this year, is the best book Miles wishes he hadn't put off reading for this long. How did I go so long without reading Marjorie Liu's run on X-23 and the miniseries that led up to it? It's so good. Laura's an incredibly compelling character. I like All-New Wolverine even more knowing where she came from, and it's also got, like, the most likable gambit by far in the history of X-Men. X-23 is good. There are new complete collections that came out. If you haven't read it, we'll also be like me in the sense that you fix your mistakes. Next, we have the 2016 Who Cares If It's Good If It's Fun Award. And that goes to summer blockbuster X-Men Apocalypse. Might be a bit patchy, pacing might be a bit off, and goddamn am I tired of the ongoing story of Charles Xavier Magneto and all of their feelings, but the kids were delightful, the movie was a blast, and we're really happy to see the franchise finally moving forward. Next comes another new category this year. This is the award for Best Actual Wolverine to Appear in an X-Book. This goes to Jonathan, the actual Wolverine from All New Wolverine. We love him. After that, let's do the Irene Adler Memorial Award for Most Anticipated Upcoming Series. Hands down, this is going to go to Christina Strain's Generation X series of the upcoming X titles announced. This is the one that we are on the edge of our seats for. Well, it's one of several, but this is the one for which we are furthest to the edge of our seats. Exactly. Traditionally, one of the categories of the Corbos is the Cyclops Has a Good Day Award, which goes to the best representation of Cyclops having a good day in X canon in any medium. We will not be issuing one of these because Cyclops had no good days in the entirety of 2016 in any canonical form. None? I mean, young Cyclops hugged Laura that one time and that seemed nice. Yeah, but it was in context of a bad day. Oh. They were both having a a really rough day. Poor Scott. I mean, poor Scott all the time. And the other one died. (laughs) That's true. He very much did. The next category is for Best Stealth X series for a series in another Marvel franchise that is actually secretly an X-Men book. This award goes to Al Ewing's New Avengers, now called U.S. Avengers, for kind of being a great big New Mutants revival and also being delightful. After this, we have the Christopher Anka Award for Best Withering Sneer in an X-Book. This goes, unsurprisingly, to Emma Frost, specifically to Emma Frost, as she appears in the Humans vs. X-Men number one. Our next award is the Wet Noodle Award for the worst anti-climax of 2016. We gotta go with the noodle incident. The what Cyclops did thing. I mean, in Humans vs. X-Men and Death of X turned out pretty cool, but, uh, you build it up that big, 
you, you've just painted yourself into a corner. How about the Making Lemonade Award for making something good out of ingredients that were not so good? That, again, goes to Inhumans versus X-Men. We are somewhat withholding judgment until we see how the series wrap up and maintain the right to withdraw this Corbo if it turns out to suck. Our final category of the modern Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbo Awards for Excellence, excellence goes to the best non-X-Marvel comic of the year. And this goes to Tom King and Gabriel Hernandez Walta's The Vision series. It only went on for like 12 issues, but damn, it was good. Next, we are moving on to the classic Corbos. These are awards we grant to forgotten, overlooked, or just generally excellent Vintage X material that we've covered on the podcast in the last 12 months. So the best cover ever forever award goes to Excalibur number four featuring the janitor. It's so good. Buried Treasure Award for a largely forgotten series, miniseries, or story arc that we want to see revived and revisited. We got to go with Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. That series was amazing, beautiful art, great premise, inspired a really awesome long conversation with a nuclear physicist. Definitely check it out. The Why Isn't This Collected Award has to go to... The X-Factor Arc Judgment War, drawn by Paul Smith and written by Louise Simonson. Our We're Still Crying Over This Award for... Biggest tearjerker? I mean, it's New Mutant 64. An innocent teenage robot inhabits a corpse trying to bring his best friend back to life. I mean, goddamn, people. The Unhand That Elf Award goes to... The line, Unhand That Elf, as delivered by Captain Britain. The Better Terrain in Hell Award for a character triumphing over narrative determinism goes to... Madeline Pryor in Inferno. Of course. And speaking vaguely of, who gets our 2016 You Tried Award? Magneto is passing the torch. This year's winner is Ileana Rasputin. Finally, we return to, I don't think this has been an official award in, in years previous, but you can take it as written. This is the ABD award for still not finishing his goddamn dissertation, which goes to Alex Summers. Poor Alex Summers. Finally, one more award. We usually stick this in the modern corpos. I'm not sure why we left it till the end, except for, you know, to make it more dramatic. But this is the award for best listeners of any podcast ever. It's been a clean sweep the last two years, and once again, I believe that tradition is continuing. Miles, you want to make it official? It's you. It's you, the people listening to this podcast right now. Okay, so normally we do thanks to a couple specific Patreon supporters at the end of each episode, but right now, as we've done in past years, we have to say this is us thanking all of you, from the listeners who have been here since April 2014 when we started, to the ones who even maybe just started right now. To the longtime X-Men super fans, to the listeners who'd never even picked up a comic book before they started tuning into the podcast. From our awesome Patreon donors to listeners who just tell their friends about us. All of that is super awesome. From the frequent blog commenters, the folks who have attended our meetups, who've come with us over to IMSI, who've formed the core of our community, to the silent lurkers who we know were there in spirit. We seriously have an incredible community. Like, we can't believe how lucky we've been. We've gone through some weird stuff lately, and everyone's been awesome. We also talk about some weird stuff, which is to say X-Men, and you guys are great. Everyone's pretty awesomely respectful and, you know, smart and funny and engaged. Yeah, you have seen us through some really intense stuff over the last few years, and you've stuck around, and you have been so cool, and you've been so cool to each other, too. You get each other zines and merch, you trade comics recommendations. This morning I was seeing on Twitter someone who'd asked for recommendations of good comic shops in the London area was tweeting back to us to tell us about the places folks had recommended to them from within the community. You are the coolest. You remain, as far as I'm concerned, the thing that makes the internet worth having. Yes, exactly. 
So yeah, 2016, hell of a year, slightly late winter special, but thank you for sharing it all with us. We're going to keep doing this for as long as we possibly can. We hope you keep listening. So that's thanks to the listeners. I feel like we should add also thanks to everyone who's been more directly involved, to all of the guests we've had over the last year, to our amazing, amazing producer, Kyle, who is recording this the day after getting back from Japan because he is a god among men. A kaiju among men, in fact. To the folks who have helped put together convention appearances for us, who've put us up, you know, all of that. You are all amazing, spectacular humans, and we really literally couldn't do the stuff that we do here without you two. Our really, really kick-ass partners who tolerate our total inability to make Saturday plans because of this damn thing. This is a community project and a community effort, and ours might be the names on it, but it really wouldn't exist with just the two of us. So here's to another year. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, shuffle your deck, charge up your staff, and practice your best phonetic Cajun accent. It's gambit time. This year's Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau Awards for Excellence at Excellence are brought to you by your soft jazz station, ZZ105.